Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll come up against something and I'll just go, look, I, I just don't know what to do here. I'm not sure how to deal with this situation. And most of the time, my first response is to pray. But there are times when you have to do something beyond prayer and you have to go to YouTube. Anybody been there? <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do. So in the last few months, it's been a garbage disposal. It's been a lawnmower and a coffee maker, all of which I've had to go, YouTube, help me. And they come through every time. Somebody's posted some kind of video to show you this is how you fix this. This is what you do with that. Sometimes you watch a video and go, this is what you're not supposed to do. That guy made more of a mess than he needed to. But it's a helpful tool. And here's the reason why. Because if I want to do something the right way, it's really helpful for me to know and to have a model of how I'm supposed to do it. We're starting today jumping into a series on the book of Acts. Why the book of Acts? Why is this so important? Because if you want to know what the church should look like, it would be good to see how it's supposed to be done. And as we look at the model of the first century church, it's going to help us to be the church that God has called us and created us to be. Now, I've had several people who said to me, hey, how are we going to do this? How are we going to go through the book of Acts? Are we going to do like a a chapter a week? How are we going to do this? Here's the truth. We're going to work our way through this book. We'll probably take a couple of side trips and some breaks along the way. There'll be parts of the book we'll probably run through. There'll be other parts of the book that we might just kind of stop, take our time and look around a little bit. You'll hear a lot of the same scriptures kind of over and over again. And as we're looking this and planning this, here's what I know. It'll probably take us longer than three weeks. It'll probably be less than three years. How's that? I'm not sure. (laughs) And that's not even a promise. We're going to work our way through and see what the Spirit says to us. And I do this with a great sense of expectation because it seems like we're at a place in the life of our church where God is opening up a new chapter for us in the things that he wants to do. We have more people coming than ever. We're seeing more life change than ever. And have you noticed the world around us? It seems like people need the gospel more than ever, right? And so in our role as a church and what God's called us to do, this is a pivotal time, pivotal. Have you ever heard that word? That's, that's a whole bunch of words put together. You can use it tomorrow at work and impress your friends. This is a pivotal time for us to be seeing what God wants to do through the church. I mean, even last week, we, we saw Pastor Keith shared those numbers. That's powerful to have over 500 kids. But what that also tells us is we're out of space for kids. I mean, we, we have that challenge. So what you're going to see in the next few weeks is we're going to start some demo down on that end. There's several theaters that we're not using either at all or to their full capacity. And so we've got to go in and demo what's in there. We've never done any of this in this building. So we're going to go in and demo and re-renovate those rooms to be able to use for our preschool, for our elementary, for our, for our middle school uh, students so that we'll be able to do more effective ministry in those places. Two reasons. One, it's urgent that we need that space. But two, those steps allow us to move forward then with other needs that we have. Um, if you're in auditorium two, welcome. Um, we need a bigger auditorium. <laughs> and so what, what is that going to look like as God moves us forward? So all of these are steps and we want to do this in the way that God has designed and directed the church to go. That's why we go to the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to jump in there today, see what the scripture has to say to us, beginning with verse 1, Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
there's some interesting things there that I think would be helpful for us as we move forward with this series. So I want to give you three acts facts. We're going to just look at these three things real quick here today that I think are some facts that will help us to understand this book. Here's number one. Acts was written by Luke. Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Now, Luke is the same guy who wrote for us the gospel of Luke that we, that we looked at last week that tells us the story of Jesus. And so Luke is, is someone who history tells us, and so church fathers of, of the, the first century, people that, that were there at the time and that all throughout church history have attested the fact that Luke wrote the book of Acts. We know that he was a companion of the apostle Paul. When, when we get to the second half of the book of Acts, it's largely about Paul. And there comes a point as you, as you read through the story that Luke begins to use the pronoun us, which means that he was there in those places. So Luke was a, a companion of Paul's. He was also a doctor. The, the Bible tells us that he was a physician. Colossians chapter four, verse 14 says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor. And that's why oftentimes you may see him use some specific detail. He'll point out physical things as we go through this because he has an eye for those things because he's a physician. So we know he's a doctor. The, the other thing that he is, maybe not by trade, but he sure ends up being this, is he's a historian. Luke is someone who looks for the facts. He looks for eyewitness accounts, and then he retells these stories. Look at how he begins his first book, The Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, look, I, I have eyewitness accounts to this. I talked to people who were there. I interacted with people who told me the story because they saw the story happen. He was a historian who then tells us these stories. Which leads us to the second fact that, that I think would be good for us just to know as we look at this. There's this word that he used in Luke chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 1 that sounds like a vitamin that I sometimes take called Theophilus. Have any of you ever taken Theophilus? Two a day will just help to, I don't know. Theophilus is not a vitamin. It's a guy's name. And this is the second fact I want you to see. Acts was written for Theophilus. Luke wrote these books for a guy named Theophilus. His name means lover of God in the Greek, and they believe he was probably a, a Greek or a Roman who was someone who probably had quite a bit of wealth. In fact, he refers to him there in Luke chapter 1. Did, did you see where he said most excellent Theophilus? Wouldn't you like it if people called you that? I'm putting that on my business card. Most excellent Chad Gilligan. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? The truth is, he was probably Luke's patron. He was a guy that said, I want this history to be recorded. Luke, you, you have the means to do it. I will write the check. I will fund it for you to write these books. So most likely he was someone who had an encounter with, with Jesus Christ. He had his life changed through the gospel. And he wanted, he was in a position to, he wanted to be able to record that history to pass it on to others. Which leads us then to the third fact about Acts that I think is really good for us to know. Number three, Acts is the second of two volumes. Acts is the second 
of two volumes. There's two books that Luke wrote. The first is the Gospel of Luke. The second is the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. The first is about the story of Jesus. The second is about the story of the church after Jesus. And so he wrote the first one, then he wrote the second one. He thought the first story was really important, but it needed to be followed up by the second one, and that's critically important. And I love the description that Luke gives of what the church did in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, verse six, this is regarding persecution that was coming to believers in the city of Thessalonica. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that a cool phrase? They've turned the world upside down. Now we know they really didn't turn it upside down, it's just they were living right side up in an upside down world, right? But the truth is, that a powerful thing happens in the book of Acts. When the church hits the world, the world is changed, and that's the story that Luke tells in his second volume. You ever, you ever, um, you ever seen any movies or books or TV shows that are, that are kind of part of a series, and maybe there's the first one, and then there's what we often refer to as the sequel? And if you try to just watch or read the sequel without having seen the first one, you fully don't understand it. Look, you're not going to understand the great leaders, Buzz and Woody, unless you've seen the first Toy Story, right? <laughs> Who cares about finding Dory unless first you find Nemo? True? Any Star Wars fans? Empire Strikes Back only makes sense with the new hope, right? You have to see the first part to understand the second. So what we want to do today is also spend some time in the book of Luke. So you might want to hold your place in Acts chapter 1. Go back to Luke chapter 24. It's where we left off last week. Because the best way for us to understand volume 2 of Luke's writings is to see how volume 1 wraps up. So we'll jump back and forth between those two today. Luke chapter 24. Let's pick up where we left off on Easter, verse 45, and watch what Jesus says. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That last line that he uses there is pretty powerful. You are witnesses of these things. In saying that, he's, he's put some responsibility on them. He's given them a little sense of obligation. He says, now you, you, you have to carry this. You're witnesses of these things. You didn't just see it, but you need to talk about it. And if I may be so bold, they're not the only witnesses. Yes, they were witnesses to the story of Jesus, but if you've had your life changed through a, a transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring, then you're witnesses to that as well. Those who have been saved and forgiven are witnesses to the story of Jesus. So it's not just the apostles in the first century. I really do believe that this passage of scripture is talking to you today, talking to me today as well. That's critically important for us to see and to understand, especially as we get into the book of Acts. Because we can have this temptation to read the book of Acts and say that it's just history. Cool story, neat to hear. We read it and then we put it on a shelf. The truth is the book of Acts is not just history, it's also theology. It shows us, it's a role model, it's a, it's a YouTube video, if you will, of how we're supposed to live life as the church. And if we read it just as history, if we read it just as something that happened in the past, we will totally miss out 
on how God wants to impact us through the stories, through the theology, through the things that we'll read in the book of Acts, which is important for us to see and, and maybe to take kind of a side note to help us understand why this is so important for us. Calvary, Calvary Church, is what we would refer to, if we, had to, if we had to put a label on it, it's what we would refer to as a Pentecostal church. Now, I know this is uh, going to be overly simple and crude in what I'll walk through, but I want to help you to understand kind of where this fits in the history of Christianity. We, we use this big umbrella term, and we say that, that we are Christians. But as Christians, you can start to kind of hone down what that really means for different groups based on what they believe and based on how they live. So oftentimes when we, when we speak about being Christians, we, we sometimes break that down in, in our society into kind of Catholic and Protestant. So Calvary would land in the Protestant side of things. And then in Protestantism, oftentimes we'll take Protestant churches and we'll kind of break them down into what we call mainline Protestant churches and evangelical Protestant churches. And you can define those all, thing, all kinds of ways, but we would lean theologically more in that evangelical side. And then even within the, the, the greater umbrella of the evangelical church, there's kind of different groups based on how you believe and, and what you view in scripture. Sometimes there's what you would call kind of a fundamentalist evangelical. There's different groups. We would be what would be referred to as a Pentecostal church within that subset. Now, we'll, we'll look at why it's called Pentecostal here in a few weeks when we get to Acts chapter two. But some of you have heard that word before. Maybe you didn't even realize that you were, you were sitting in a, in a Pentecostal church and you go, Pentecostal those people are weird. <laughs> I heard about them. There's, where's the exit? Like, that's what you're thinking right now. Because Pentecostal church, that's weird. That's where they run around. I'm pretty sure they're about to bust out the snakes. They're those holy rollers who swing from chandeliers. The reality is, unless it's your very first Sunday here, you, you know us. First of all, you can't roll in a movie theater. You'll get hurt. It's not going to work, right? And we don't even have chandeliers. The snakes are out back. We're not doing that. Okay, like it's important for us to kind of talk about those things and understand it. So, so if that's not it, right, because there's a lot of hype and misunderstanding that surrounds certain terms at times, what does that mean? My hope is through this series that you'll see that that term isn't weird. It's, it's actually biblical. Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Look at what, what Peter says on the day of Pentecost as he's preaching a sermon about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's us. We fall in that category. What, what God is doing, he's doing, not just in the past, but he's doing it today. So if you need kind of a, a working definition of what it means to be a Pentecostal church, here's what we believe. Put, push aside all the stereotypes or the things you might have heard. A Pentecostal church believes that the things God did in the New Testament, God is still doing today. That what he did in scripture, the way he worked in people's lives, the way he interacts, God is still doing those things today. Man, if he's not, I'd feel like I was missing out. And the truth is this, when you, when you look at that, when you see that, that helps you to read Acts, not as history. It is historical, but it's also theology and it helps us to see how we should live our lives. So let's go back to Luke. Let's look at what Luke tells us about what Jesus did in his, in his first volume there at the end. Luke chapter 24, verse 49. He says this, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Who's he talking to here? Well, he's talking to his disciples. When is it? Well, we, we saw this last week. This was uh, the first time that Jesus was with his disciples after the resurrection. So think about those 72 hours for them. On Friday, 
the guy that they pledged their lives to follow, is crucified. That's not only a horrible way to die, think of how humiliating that must have been for the followers. To the point that, what did they do? We read that they went to a room and they locked the door. They hid themselves because they weren't sure what was coming next. They were freaked out by this whole thing. They, they barricaded themselves in. And what happens in the midst of that? Well, they have people begin to talk to them. And they say, hey, look, we, we've seen Jesus. He's come back. He was dead, but he's back to life again. And they're like, how can this be? How does this work? And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in the middle of the room, locked door. There he is. Would you be freaked out? <laughs> I think we clarified this last week. Yes, you would. And he's there. And then he begins to talk to them. So much so, remember Luke told us that they had a hard time believing this because of the joy and amazement that they were experiencing. And then Jesus says to them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay in the city until, until God gives you something powerful. I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time digesting all of that. Because I think my first thought would be, I'm not ready for this. I'm, un, I'm unprepared. I, I don't know what this is going to look like. I, I, don't, I don't know how this is going to work. And it would probably freak me out a little bit because when I feel unprepared, I start to talk myself out of something. Or if if I don't talk myself out of it soon enough, then I get overwhelmed. And I feel the pressure of the whole thing. And I'm sure that it's all gonna crack and that I'm not gonna be able to do this. And I don't know how this is gonna end up. But when you read this, what you you don't see is an unprepared, overwhelmed group of of disciples. I'd like to give them kind of a different designation. I'd, I'd like to use the term, they had a holy desperation. They knew there was something that they needed. And I don't think their feeling was this, that I don't know what else to do. I think their feeling was, I know there's nothing else for me to do, but to put my hope and my trust in God, to look to him. Call it a holy desperation. Call it spiritual hunger. Here's here's where I'd love for us to land. Holy desperation is an active acknowledgement that you desire God's plan and power for your life, knowing that nothing else will satisfy. Let me read that again. A holy desperation is an active acknowledgement. You're gonna move on it. That you desire God's plan and power for your life, knowing that nothing else will satisfy. Can I tell you what this series is? maybe even just for the next few weeks, it's an invitation. And you can choose to do with an invitation whatever you want to do. But this is an invitation to something greater in your life. There have been times in my life where there was an opportunity that was there in front of me that I knew that my only chance to take it might be right then. When Rhonda and I were in Colorado near the Arkansas River, And she said, why don't we go whitewater rafting? And I said, why don't I make sure our will is current first? (laughs) I didn't want to do that. I'd seen videos of that. I'd heard stories of that. I I didn't have my floaties. I was nervous. (laughs) When we were in Branson, Missouri, Rhonda said, we should go ziplining. Like, I don't really want to swing off a dental floss. It just doesn't sound like a good idea to me. And then I said but I'm here, and if I don't do it now, when will I do it? If I don't take this step right now, what will I miss out on? I don't have one regret about whitewater rafting. I don't have one regret about ziplining. I'm so glad I didn't 
miss it in the moment because it was uncomfortable or because I didn't know what it was going to be like or because I was fearful about it. And this is an invitation for you to look at life and say, God, whatever it is that you have in front of me, I don't want to miss this. I don't want to let this slip me by. And it begins with this holy desperation where you say, God, I'm going to offer all this up to you. This is kind of a little piece of church news. Um, many of you would know. In fact, I encourage you to pray for the family a few weeks ago. Tom Maidman, if you've ever um, walked into this service, Tom typically stands right over there and greets people as, uh, as he comes in. And his wife, Ann, is often right upstairs there at the, at the very top greeting people. And Tom has been in the midst of a um, tough bout with cancer. And yesterday, he went home to meet his Lord. And... Um, I had interaction with Tom over this series of time. This is a guy who was a role model in the way that he lived. And I can tell you he was a role model in the way that he died. Blessing, speaking words of faith, encouraging other people. I was just talking with a friend before service who said every time you go to visit Tom to bless him, you'd walk away more blessed. Which caused me to say, whether I live or die, I want to do it all with everything that I have to honor God. I don't want to miss out on this adventure. I don't want to waste a moment of what he wants for me to do. If you're going to do that, it has to start with this sense of holy desperation. Let's go back to those words of Jesus. I, I, want you to, I want you to see this. Let's unpack that verse in just a few ways. Luke 24, 49. Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. So what is this that the Father has promised? What's interesting is volume two helps us to understand volume one. So look at what volume two tells us about what the Father has promised. Acts chapter one, verse three. After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that Jesus was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He calls this, and I love this, this way that he speaks about it. He says, God is going to give to you a gift. Who likes gifts? Good gifts. This isn't a white elephant scripture. Who likes good gifts? Right? I love good gifts. You tell me you're going to give me a gift. I get excited about that. I get stoked about it. I want that gift. I love Christmas. I love my birthday. It's a neat thing when you know I, I love the cake. I love the family. I love all that stuff. But when can we open the gifts? Right? Guys, a lot of you will not be able to relate to this. But I went several weeks ago to my very first bridal shower. <laughs> wasn't for me. It was, uh, I'd not been to one like this before. It was my, my son Clayton and his fiance Ari are getting married here this summer. And so there was a bridal shower. And so I kind of snuck in and was there. I, just to be honest, I was there for the food. <laughs> I went with Clayton though. He wasn't there for the food. You know what he was there for? <laughs> he was there for the gifts. It's a cool thing. I remember just kind of sitting there and people just kind of sitting there and watching them open their gifts. And I said, is this how a bridal shower works? And they said, yep, this is how it works. And then I went, this is why I've never been. 
kind of boring to, to me, I guess, except for it's really cool that you have all these people who love you and care about you, who, who believe in the future for you, and so they come together and they say, look, we, we, we want to gift you with things that you need for the life that you have ahead. It's really kind of a beautiful picture of, of, of family and community and, and care for one another. It was neat to see it and really helps me understand what Jesus says here when he says, your father has a gift for you, something he wants to give you because he loves you, because he cares about you, because he wants you to have what you need for the journey that you have ahead. And what's interesting here in this passage is when you read that, it, it creates this expectation. When you say there's a gift you wanna give to me, I start to desire that. I have an expectation for that. Understand this, expectation creates hunger. When you start to think about something and, and begin to open yourself up to that thing, it creates this hunger inside of you as you begin to expect that. So when Jesus says, look, there's a gift that you can expect, that expectation creates in you that hunger. I want that gift. What is the gift? Let's look at this passage in Luke chapter 11. We'll actually come back to this several times in this series. Luke chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven, watch what Luke says here, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he has just identified a good gift that God will give to us with the Holy Spirit. God has promised to give his people the gift of his Holy Spirit. It's the promise that he has given to us. And you see this played out in particular in the book of Acts as we move through here. This is a gift. So we're going to take, as we go through this series a couple of weeks and talk about what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Because oftentimes I think we neglect the teaching and as a result then we neglect the experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We won't spend a lot of time there today, but here's kind of a, a quick help for us. The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity and a relationship with him is a vital part of the Christian life. You see, we say a relationship with him because the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a person. And he wants to be at work and in relationship with you in your life. And so in this series, we're going we're gonna to talk about what, what Paul says about the Holy Spirit, what John says about the Holy Spirit, what Luke says Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at these things and it will help us to understand this more, not because they contradict each other, but because they help to clarify what we're supposed to believe. This is why we call this the next big thing. Because what Jesus is saying to the disciples is this, you've, you've, you've lived volume one of the book of, of, the book of Luke, but now the next big thing is for you to jump into what I want to do next, not just for you, but what I want to do through you. And with that expectation of that gift, he creates this hunger in them. Let's go back to what he says in verse 49, because this is, this is key for us to unpack this and to see this. Luke 24, 49, Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That's a pretty cool thing. He says, look, I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to put on you the power that you need for your life. Again, the second volume helps us to understand the first volume. So Acts chapter 1 tells us more about this power. Look at verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, 
It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we'll come back to that passage of Scripture, but here's, here's the truth I want you to see, that God is going to give you what you need to do what he's called you to do. I've, I've been times and places where there's been something expected of me and I didn't have the tools and I didn't have the resources and I wasn't able to do that. And it's frustrating. You ever been there? God's not gonna put you there. He's not gonna leave you there. He'll give you what you need. God will provide you with all that you need to accomplish all that God has created you to be and do. Look, some of you need to rest in that because he's gonna give you all that you need. This is a promise from him to accomplish, he's not gonna leave you alone. Scripture says he's not gonna leave us as orphans. He's gonna give us what we need to accomplish what he's created us to be and to do. This is a, this is a powerful truth. He's gonna give us his power. And we'll, we'll unpack this, we'll look at this. And for some of you, this is critical. Because if you had to define your life right now, you would use terms like running on empty. Batteries are dead. I'm weak and weary. I'm not sure if I can do it. And what God is opening up for you here is this expectation right out of the gate in Acts chapter one to say, look, I'll give you what you need. Mom, you're not sure you can raise those kids, but I'll give you what you need. Student, you're not sure if you can accomplish what you've got to do to finish the course. And the, and the truth is, God will give you what you need for that work that's in front of you, for that situation with your family, for that news that you got that you're not, you're not quite sure how to handle, for those times when you question, can I do this? The reality is not only can you do it, but the way you can do it is through his power that he will, when this powerful, he'll clothe you with that. He's gonna cover you with it. He's gonna give you the power that you need. So, so what do you do? Well, look at this. Go back to verse 49 one more time. Jesus says, I'm going to send you what the Father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus says, look, you, you go back and you stay in that city until you receive the power that I'm going to give to you. He says, look, you have to be in a place and in a state of mind to receive what I want to give you. And that, that was verse uh, 49. Well, Luke doesn't really highlight for us. You kind of piece this together when you read the book of Acts. There's about 40 days between verse 49 and verse 50. And in verse 50, here's what Jesus says. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, which is out on the Mount of Olives, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. That's what we call the ascension. We'll look at that next week. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Picture this. Jesus looks at his disciples. This is the last time they'll, they'll see him on earth, right? He looks at them and he lifts his hands. That's significant because this is what the priests would do in the Old Testament. When it was time for them to convey blessing on someone, they would lift their hands and they would convey this blessing on others. He's saying to them, look, I am giving you something from God right now. I'm gonna give you the power that you need. I'm gonna give you the strength that you need. You go and you wait for it. You watch for it. He says, I want you to have an expectation for it. I want you to have this holy desperation that I'm gonna give this and pour this out in your life. And it's this powerful truth that you and I need to be in that same place. 
And so if God's calling you to do something, if he's asking you to take a step of faith, if he's, if he's just stirring in you to be open to what he might say to you. See, some of us, we're, we're cool to go to church and check the box off, but we're kind of like this when it comes to maybe even having God stir in our lives because we like our job and we like our family and we like our house and we like what's going on and we're afraid that if we open up our hearts, God's gonna do something weird to us. You ever been there? What Jesus says is, look, if, you, if, you'll, if you'll open up with this sense of expectation and say, God, I want what you want to do in my life, something powerful then can happen. Why do we miss this sometimes? Well, let me encourage you. Do not let being uncomfortable keep you from God's promises. Sometimes the reason that we, we kind of push aside God's voice or opportunities that come is because when we think about it, it makes us a little uncomfortable. And we go, I don't know that I want to do that. Because that's, that's going to be out of my comfort zone. Look, don't miss out on God's promises just because something makes you uncomfortable. Think of what it was like for the disciples. Jesus says, go back in the city. The city was the place where the rulers were, where the leaders were, where the people who had just killed Jesus were. And he says, you, you go back in there and you wait. Do you think it was uncomfortable? But they knew that that was where they had to be to receive God's promises. So, so do not let being uncomfortable keep you from God's promises. And look, do not let being uncertain keep you from God's promises. Sometimes we go, well, I don't, I don't want to do this, or I don't want to take that step, or I don't want to, because I'm not sure how it's going to play out. The disciples, all they knew was, God has a gift, he's going to send it, you wait for it. They didn't, have a, they didn't have a description of it. They didn't know how it was going to go. It was very uncertain. But they knew that they could trust a God who was good and loved them to give them what they needed. And look, this last, this last thing here on this thought is, uh, is just for me. I know it doesn't apply to any of you, but I feel like I should probably say it. This is just for me. Do not let being busy keep you from God's promises. Because I'm sure I'm the only one that's sometimes too busy. Right? Like this, this, is a, this is a dangerous one because I get so wrapped up in what's going on in my life that I let the things that I'm being forced by, pressured by, rob me from the expectation, the hunger that I need to have for God. Now look, I'm not promising you that you'll be any less busy but what if you could be busy with an awareness that says, God, I, I want you to be at work even in my busyness. God, I welcome you into what I'm doing. Holy Spirit, would you lead me in this? Because if you're not looking for it, if you're not asking God for it, if you're not open to what he wants to do in your life, if you're not welcoming the Holy Spirit into your job and into your home and into your areas of your life, then you won't receive it. See, spiritual experience begins with personal expectation. This is the whole point, right? This is what he's saying. Look, wait for this gift. I'm gonna give it to you. And that expectation leads to hunger and that hunger will open up the door. But you won't have that spiritual experience unless you start with that personal expectation. Spiritual experience begins with a personal expectation. That's what's so powerful about this. That Luke sets us up in volume one, but he opens it up in volume two because that experience you're looking for flows from expectation. That's where it comes from. So experience will flow from the expectation. If you're not looking for it, if you're pushing it aside, if you're not open to it, you won't have it. But if you'll say, God, I open up myself to what you want to do, then you'll receive that, which for some of us is a terrifying thought. 
Because if I open myself up to that, I don't know what God's going to do. What if, what, if, what if something weird happens? You ever, you ever been looking for a place, restaurant, store, whatever, never been there, not familiar with it, and you have this idea in your mind of what it's supposed to look like, but that's not what it looks like? And so when you get there, you drive right by it. Have you ever done that? I mean, even your GPS is saying, this is it. And you're like, no, it's not. Because you thought it looked different than that. And so you cruised right by it. And then you ended up somewhere where you did not want to be. Look, God is, God is not going to allow you to have an experience like that. God does not want to do something weird in your life. God's work and God's will must always line up with God's word. So look, if God's doing something in your life you can have the assurance to know that it will line up with scripture. God's work and God's will for your life will always line up with God's word. So he's not gonna catch you off guard. He's not gonna do something weird. In fact, if there's something that comes in your life that doesn't line up with that, then you know it's not from God. He's not doing that. He wants to do a work in our lives. But this message, this day, you know what it is? We haven't even jumped into Acts yet. This is just an invitation this is just an encouragement as we go into this, as we move forward with this, will you be willing to say as a church, as individuals, God, I open up my life to you. Volume one's not enough. I, I need into volume two because that expectation opens the heart to experience. And if you want to experience the adventure, if you want the Holy Spirit to be at work in your life, if you want to be able to look at, at your life and know that, that God was able to use you to do something powerful, it's got to start with an expectation that says, God, I open up myself to what you want to do. See, for some of us, and this is my concern, and this isn't bad, this is good. For some of us, we've, we've only experienced volume one. Like, we know the story of Jesus. What did we look at last week? His life, his death, his resurrection, his presence in our lives. That's awesome. It starts there. But if all you've got is volume one, then you're missing out on volume two. And volume two, man, that's a wild ride. And God wants to use you. He wants to be at work in your life. But it will not happen unless you first open up yourself. What do I have to do, Chad? A couple of nights ago, I got home a little late. We've been coming and going, and I hadn't, I hadn't eaten yet, and the TV was on, and so I just kind of sat down on the couch before I got something to eat and started flipping through some channels, and guess where I landed? Food Network. <laughs> I, was having, I was having a revival right there on my couch. I didn't care who got chopped. I just wanted to see what they were making. It was, it was, it was a holy moment, right? Because I'm sitting, I'm watching, my stomach's turning, but my head's spinning. I was like, I just, I just want that stuff. I want to, I want to be able to do that kind of thing. And I went out to our pantry, and it's great, but I was sorely disappointed. It's nothing like Food Networks, <laughs> which is okay because I couldn't have done any of that stuff anyways. However, when you get a recipe, right, you want, you want to take that recipe and you want to look at it because you know you want something great in, in here, in your belly, in your soul. You say, if that's what I want, then how do I get there? So you read the recipe and you go, okay, so here's the ingredients. I got to make sure I have those things. And then you got to start following the instructions that are there. And some things you have to prepare in one way and you might have to have something simmer and you might have to have something else marinate and you have to do these different things. And then you have to go through the process. And you do it all with expectation, right? Sometimes I think I'm going to eat this in, in like three minutes and it's going to take me three days to make it. But that's okay. Why? Because it makes the three minutes worth it. 
right? So you, with the whole expectation, you prepare that thing and then you, you cook it, you grill it, you bake it, you do whatever you have to do so that you're able to have that experience. But that experience has to start with expectation and then you move forward through the process. This book of Acts, this is an invitation to you to have that experience. And it's gonna map out for us the recipe for this. My fear though is, is that you'll be satisfied with volume one and you'll miss out on volume two. And so what I'm gonna challenge you to do today Next week, we'll kind of jump into what the recipe says. But what I want to challenge you to do today is to open up your heart to develop an expectation that leads to a hunger that becomes this spiritual, this spiritual desperation that says, God, I want to experience the adventure that you have for me. God, I open up myself. Write volume two in my life. So here's what I invite you to do. Right here in Auditorium 1, Auditorium 2, even if you're watching on a screen somewhere, would you stand with me? It's kind of right where you are. And as you stand, I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And as you think about what, what maybe the Holy Spirit's been stirring in your heart in these last few moments, here's the invitation. I'm just simply going to ask you to pray with me a simple prayer. That's it today. Now, for the record, it's a bit of a dangerous prayer. But would you pray very simply... Heavenly Father, may I experience volume two in my life. And if, and if that's your prayer, if that's, if that's what you mean, and you don't, you don't have to do this, nobody has to do this, but if you would say, God, I want you to pour out that in my life, would you just place your hands in a posture of receiving from God? Just lift your hands to Him. Kind of that first physical step. God, I have an expectation. I have a hunger. I have a, I have a holy desperation for you to do in my life what only you can do God you see our hearts you know our lives God you know our families and you know our circumstances God you know the things that we're up against you know the tremendous opportunity and God you know the heartbreaking disappointment God you know our frustrations and you know our joys you know the places God where we have strengths and you you intimately know the places where we're weak and so, God, our desire is that you would give to us the gift that you have for us, that you would clothe us with power so we can do all that you've called us to do. So, Holy Spirit, today we open up ourselves. We give you our, our lives. We give you our church. We give you our homes. And even if we may be a little uncomfortable or uncertain, we're, we're not sure how this fits in. Today, God, we ask, would you open up volume two in our lives? May we see what you want to do with great expectation and experience your power at work in us. As we go through this day, not, not just on Sunday, but would you create that hunger on Monday? God, would you, would you let us see you at work on Tuesday? And as we go through this week, may that hunger continue to build in us to see your spirit, Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Now, God, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Lord, would you send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.